Hello, and welcome back to Around Serie A in 20 Days, the podcast. A couple of apologies, first of all. Yet again, there is no theme tune, so yet again, if you want a theme tune, you can imagine one here. Okay, and the second apology is that the podcast isn't quite subscribable yet from iTunes, but I'm working on it, and I assume they are as well, so hopefully for the next episode, everything will be A-OK and super cool. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this reading of the first chapter in my book when I went to see Torino. Have fun, and remember, buy the book if you haven't already www.michaelnimmo.com is the place for that. Ciao for now! Chapter 1. Il Toro Hits the Ground Running My Journey Towards Torino Place Sassuolo The first stop on my magical mystery tour of calcio was Turin, to watch Torino play newly promoted Sassuolo. Previous to last season, I'd never heard of the visitors and had to look them up on a map, and I'm afraid to say that I'm still not much the wiser. Somewhere near Modera seems to be the conclusion. Getting there won't be much fun, as it'll involve three different trains, but that will be a pain in the arse for another day. So, Il Toro was pick number one to get me started. In 1861, before bringing people together in their appreciation of his biscuits, Giuseppe Garibaldi was one of the leading players in the unification of Italy. Turin was to be the first capital, and so, from a historical point of view, it could be argued that it would be the best, most logical place to start. In reality, the reason I chose Turin was because I thought it'd be the least maddeningly hot city to start off with in late August. The heat, it would later turn out, was not to be an issue. Another bonus of Turin is that it's quite near my base in Genoa, so I could ease myself into the waters of football travelling and watching quite easily, and without spending a lot of time or money to get there. Now that's dedication for you. Originally formed in 1887 as a football and cricket club, it wasn't until 19 years later that the team that is recognised today as Il Toro was created. The symbol is a bull, hence Il Toro while another sobriquet they have is the Igranata, after the claret strips they wear. Most one-eyed supporters of whichever team would claim theirs to be one of the most important or storied clubs in the country, and while many of these would be guilty of rose-tinting in the name of their passion, the Torino supporters may have a point. The joint fifth most successful club based on championship wins, they were a force to be reckoned with in the past. Their last glimpse of glory, excluding promotions, was in 1992 when they reached the UEFA Cup final, only to be bested by cleaning products Ajax, who scrubbed up better over two legs. The greatest era of Torino Calcio was undoubtedly that of Il Grande Torino, the legendary five-in-a-row champions of Serie A between 1942 and 1949. The seasons 43-44 and 44-45 were not recognised as being official Italian association competitions, what with the war and all that. This period ended tragically when the plane that was carrying them from a friendly against Benfica crashed into the Superga hill near Turin, 
killing all 31 people on board. Only three squad members who had not made the flight remained. On a more anglicised note, Il Toro were the club where Dennis Law and Joe Baker used to lay their hats. Graham Souness sat in the big comfy manager's chair for four months in 1997, so on second thoughts maybe it wasn't comfy enough, and for connoisseurs of shin-kicking, Pasquale Bruno hatchet-manned for them for three seasons following Italia 90. But back to this story. I set off on the Saturday to buy my ticket and proceeded to get lost in the centre of Turin. Even using Google Maps, my innate sense of direction was intuitively pointing me in various wrong directions, and I couldn't find many landmarks to orientate myself with. Essentially, the centre of Turin is a collection of very long, very straight roads, which served to bamboozle, infuriate and wrap me in a muggy blanket of heat and irritation. Once I'd sorted my backside from my elbow, I wanted to go and have a look at Il Museo del Grande Torino that seemed like a better place to learn about the team than Wikipedia. Unfortunately, my map once again foiled my good intentions, as it was not the three centimetres away from the centre that it had teased me with. It turned out to be several kilometres, and after having walked about half the way there, but always on the same street, I turned back to get my train under some fairly cantankerous-looking skies. Wikipedia it is, then. Given that this tour is probably going to cost me a fair whack of cash, I was dead happy to know that the ticket in the parole sections of the ground only cost 20 euros. Not bad to watch a Serie A match, even if the standard isn't what it once was. I went back to Turin the day after, full of a heady cocktail of one part hangover, one part excitement and two parts nervousness. Better to be neither shaken nor stirred for fear of embarrassing accidents. Would I find people who would speak to me? I'm not that desperate for company. I wanted to interview locals about their team. Would I be able to find the stadium following yesterday's farce? And more importantly, would I get mugged in the shady-looking part of town that my hotel was in? Thankfully, the answers to all those questions were not uniform. I'd been told to hang about at the bar near the Maratona, the ultras stand of the stadium if I wanted to talk to fans. It took me nearly 20 minutes of looking pensive and alone to catch my first. This might not be so hard, I thought. Turns out, he only wanted to know if I was smoking drugs or a cigarette. He seemed quite disappointed with my answer, and he didn't seem all that enthused with my questions, so I left him on his way. In order to not look like an undercover policeman, being alone, trying to speak to people, not wearing the ubiquitous claret t-shirt and refusing offers of joints, I obliged myself to a beer or two. It's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. As it turned out, finding people to speak to who would give me interesting replies was much easier to do online using supporters' forums. Somewhat strangely, someone on the Toro boards got back to me from that famous Italian emigre outpost of... Kirkcaldy. Roberto is his name, and he told me about his first memory of the stadium. I was about six. It was the old Stadio Comunale, now the Olimpico. As soon as you were off the bus, the drums of the Corva Maratona guided you right to the heart of the stand. That was the day I understood completely why it meant so much to my dad, cousins and uncles. 
It was, and it still is, not just about the football. The colours, the energy and the moral values all come into it too. Unfortunately, I'd found out the day before that all of the tickets for the Maratona had been sold out, so I made my way round to the other side of the stadium to watch the game. My first impressions were soured when the security guard took my lighter off me. My intricate fireworks routine thus scuppered, I concentrated instead on the stadium and atmosphere, and was surprised by how small the Olympico is. Two pretty small tiers in circle, but it's really more of an oval, so... an oval? A running track and the pitch. What's more, everyone was sitting on their seats in my stand. This is quite different from my previous football experiences in Italy, as I had been under the impression that seats in Italian stadia were for standing on and kicking when you conceded a goal. Maybe folk in Turin are more civilised? Or maybe I was just in a more gentrified stand. The curse of British pre-game festivities, the latest entries on the hit parade, has made its way over here, and so while I was trying to soak up some atmosphere and badger the locals about the whys and wherefores of their fandom, we were treated to the same god-awful music you could hear on the car radio on the way to the stadium if you so pleased. Just much louder. Thankfully, this was interrupted by sections of the stand singing abuse about a player whose mooted signing had been in the paper in the previous days. Now, I'm not condoning abusing players, but if said player had previously played for your city rivals and had mocked your team during a goal celebration in a derby some years earlier, well, what could he expect? As it was, given the option of pop or abuse, I much preferred the renditions of Maresca, gobo di merda, gobo di merda, which would more or less be Maresca, shitty hunchback, shitty hunchback. Maresca being Enzo Maresca, hunchback, referring to the loving nickname of all things Juventus. It added a little local colour, if nothing else. It was shortly after this that I decided that I'd much rather have been standing in the Maratona, because it looked like a pretty rocking place to be. Packed to the rafters and moving as if caught up in a mosh pit, it was illuminated by occasional flares. Looking at them, then looking at the swathes of empty roads around me, I promised that for future trips, I'd try harder to get a ticket in the Corva whenever possible. One bone of contention with the songs, though, was that the effort to squeeze Gobo di Merda into as many chants as possible sometimes led to a lot of creative license being taken with the number of syllables, which while uh, I admire their dedication, from a musical perspective felt a bit jammed in and one-track minded. When the game itself kicked off, it wasn't much to speak of. The small band of Sassuolo supporters who had made the trip from, well, Sassuolo, but like I say, who knows where that is really, tried to get something going, but sadly for them, their team couldn't reciprocate the feeling. A pretty bitty first half was enlivened by nominative determinism's bit noir, Ciro Immobile, when he set up an 18-yard strike into the bottom corner for Matteo Brighi. 1-0 to Il Toro. For the rest of the game, Immobile did what I'd understood him to be capable of, having seen him play a few times the season before. Run about a lot, look lively, then, when the inevitable chance crops up that his movement creates, fall in his arse. Oh, Chiro. 
or me by the end of the season. He ended up as Capocannonieri, the top goal scorer, having bagged himself 22 goals. Just to prove that the Maratona wasn't the only place where people could have fun while watching an average game, a man behind me had an entertaining line of implorations for his beloved Toro, or at least they made me smile. He would frequently urge his players to remove something from their posteriors, and then for them to forcibly insert it into the collective sedere of Sassuolo. As it was only the first match of the season, for him to be so worked up surprised me, but perhaps he'd had a summer of cold turkey, shaking and shivering, deprived of his fix of football and this was his chance to sfogare, let off some steam. It was all pretty standard fare for football steria, perhaps, but the range of voices he used in doing so suggested that moonlighting as an impressionist might not be such a bad idea in these times of financial hardship. We might not have been in the party stand, but at least he knew how to have a good time. This was in marked contrast to the teenage couples who were sitting in front of me some of whom alternated between dramatically covering their eyes, waving their arms and screeching when Toro lost the ball, and their girlfriends weren't too impressed with it all either. The second half was more of the same, a limited Sassuolo side getting a bit of the ball, but as much as they huffed and puffed, couldn't quite create any clear chances. Torino were happy to get the ball back and try to hit them on the break, and added to their first half goal when Alessio Cerci charged across the defence and pinged a shot into the net. 2-0. He stood out as being the most gifted player on the pitch, but is said to be a bit of a difficult chap. While he played for Fiorentina, the story goes that one evening he parked his flash car on double lines near the restaurant where he was eating. When asked to move his car by a local police officer, he said he would, but only after he'd finished eating. I'm sure that it seemed like a reasonable compromise to him at the time, but really adds ammunition to people who think that football players are arrogant and live in a bubble. With this cushion, the Torino players started to make themselves more comfortable, and the game fizzled out. The same could not be said of the weather, as at half-time I had started to see lightning in the distant sky. For the final 15 minutes, I didn't really concentrate on the game, and instead hoped that the rain would pass us by, or at least hold off until I got back to my hotel, but it was not to be. As we approached the final whistle, so Jupiter approached the stadium with arms full of rain, thunder and lightning to throw down on us poor mortals. It started hosing down in a way that just doesn't happen back home in Scotland. It was like standing in a power shower turned up to 11, with the added bonus of being fully dressed. Many people had brought ponchos that, while aesthetically unsatisfying, looked to be functionally solid. I, on the other hand, was wearing shorts and t-shirt. The only even remotely satisfying aspect of all of this was that some supporters started singing a song to the tune of Raindrops keep falling on my head. Although it made me smile, it wouldn't keep me dry. So after the game had ended, I hung about undercover before finally giving up on waiting out the storm and made a very wet dash for it. Predictably, I got lost on the way back to my hotel. By the time I had crossed some rivers that I'm sure hadn't been there four hours before and had made it back, even my bones were soaked through. Next time, I'm going to buy a poncho.